Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. We absolutely love having Christian and uh, Bex and their three kids part of the church. Where's the family? Are they, are they in here somewhere? I think they've, I think they've, I think they've bothered to turn up, but um, she's at the way. She's waving. She's probably breastfeeding. Oh, yeah, at the, at the back. Okay, well, better not draw attention to that then, whatever we do. Don't so, back. Yeah. No, Never. so, no, uh, Christian, yeah. um, first of all, Christian Guy is your name. Um, how, how does that work out for you generally? Pretty badly. Um, especially when I make all sorts of mistakes. Um, but it keeps me on my toes. Uh, you, can't, you can't stray too far off or suddenly become a Muslim. It's difficult. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, it's, it's always reassuring when you're about to uh, have someone preach to hear that from them. Yeah. And Don't worry. Now, not, not long after you... you um, I mean, you sort of joined Emmaus, really, because you went along to Focus and, and heard about what was happening and got, got involved. Um, lives always get changed at Focus, do, do come. Now, um, Christian, not long after joining, you, you said to me one day, do you want to pop in and see me in the office one day? And I did, but it was quite an unusual office, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Tell us about that. I think at that stage I was working in 10 Downing Street uh, for David Cameron as one of his special advisors. So um, it wasn't to show off, but I genuinely wanted to see you. You said you're in London and uh, I could arrange a cup of tea. So I think we, we sat next to the cabinet room, if I remember, and um, you, you kind of gave me very good advice about various things. But yeah, it was uh, a real privilege to be working in there. And it, um, it ended pretty fast last summer. You may have noticed. Uh, <laughs> He, he had to resign. Um, I had to exit quickly, which I call Quexit. Uh, and um, people sort of say, well, you know, they, we're not doing too badly out of the European Union. Well, we haven't actually left. But also, um, unemployment was 100% for me. So uh, it did have a knock-on. Okay. <laughs> um, that, that, that's a, a pretty amazing uh, role. And I know that um, uh, you, you've stepped into something equally remarkable, haven't you? Uh, you probably can't go into too many details, but just give us the headlines. Yeah, it's such a privilege. I'm part of this amazing charity that James and Julia Thomas founded called Justice and Care, which is an anti-trafficking organization helping to rescue, rehabilitate victims of slavery and prosecute uh, people who are organizing the trafficking. So it's an amazing privilege. I helped to lead the team in Europe, which is uh, quite small, but we're growing, and it's um, amazing. Brilliant. Well, it is just a, a joy, and thank you for agreeing to come and, and speak to us today out of that extraordinary experience. So, uh, he is indeed Christian Guy. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. I um, didn't get the memo about the socks, so I went for the standard black, uh, fully covered. Um, but uh, anyway, it's a real honor to be asked to be able to speak uh, this morning. Uh, thank you. And as I was gathering my thoughts in the living room this morning, um, my six-year-old came over and said, look, Daddy, stop worrying about it. Just get up there, tell them Jesus made everything and get off the stage. <laughs> so um, I was tempted just to go with that in the end, but I have got some notes and it'll take a little bit longer. Um, as we just touched on, this last year has been a, an unusual one for me, a year of reset. Uh, and I've been forced to ask some pretty big questions about life, um, and I suppose go back to core principles. When you're kind of vomited out of 10 Downing Street in about 18 hours flat, it's a bit of a shock to the system. 
I think they call it character building um, in the careers profession. But at times you start to question what you're doing with your life. And um, I'm sure you've had similar periods where you feel you're on shaky ground, you're uncertain what the future holds. And in a job like that in, in number 10, it's kind of easy to get a bit swept up in it all. You, you, know, you get to sit in on cabinet meetings, you call down to advise the, the PM about various things. Sometimes you sort of traveling in armed convoys that don't stop at traffic lights. It's a really bizarre existence. And if you're not careful, you can start to think you're there because of you. You can start to get a bit swept up as you walk through the door every morning. And I tried not to do that, but it's easy not to pray. It's easy not to focus on God and the pressure of at number 10, the cauldron that it is. So when you leave, it's a shock. And uh, as I left, uh, this amazing pastor in Manchester sent me this text. I think David Cameron had sort of gone to see the Queen. We'd gone to the pub. Uh, to drown some sorrows, and I had this text which said, look, tomorrow you'll still have the same boss, and he's still got plenty of work for you to do, which was so helpful. And that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to go back to the person of Jesus, because I don't know about you, but I find it so much easier than looking at Christianity. It's just more simple. You're chasing after his example. Where did he go? Who did he see? What did he prioritize? How did he live? What does he tell us to do? about living and loving. And it's hard to do that in the middle of a storm sometimes, but I love the translation of the message, Matthew 29, 11, where Jesus says, walk with me, learn from me, watch how I do it. And it's so um, important that we do that. You know, it, it, we had a saying in the team sometimes ahead of a big meeting or a challenging discussion, lean in, lean in intellectually, lean in emotionally, lean in, get ready for that challenge. And that's what I've tried to do this year in that period of reset. And as I've done that, trying to focus on the person of, of Jesus, one passage has been on my mind all year. And I thought um, this morning we could look at it briefly together and draw out some of the challenges I think it uh, prompts us to look at. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to John 5, 1 to 15. I think, ah, thank you. It's on the screen. This is the healing at Bethesda, John 5, 1 to 15. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked, do you want to get well? Sir, the man replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath, the, Lord forbi the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this man who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. 
Later, Jesus found him at the temple, said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who'd made him well. This is Jesus stirring things up in a big way now. He's getting noticed. He's making waves. He just before this been with the woman at the well in Samaria. And after he talked with her, we're told that many Samaritans came to believe because of what she said about Jesus. Come meet a man who's told me everything I ever did. Then he went to Capernaum and dragged a dying son back from the brink. The son of an official. This man had come to see Jesus, left his son. Just think how hard that is to leave a sick and dying child as a parent. Went to Jesus. Jesus said, go home, your son will live. The man rushes home, probably unsure if he's made the greatest mistake of his life or whether he was right to trust Jesus. He gets home and the fever left the boy as Jesus told him it would. The father starts to believe. The family believes. The village, maybe even they start to believe because word gets around. So by the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, he's on the radar. He's gathering critics. He's building hope, but he's on the move. And John opens the scene in this passage a bit like the beginning of a film. You can think of the sort of camera over Jerusalem, closing in through the sheep gate. And then we're taken to this place, this quiet pool where the sick, the disabled, the broken gather, some in hope, some probably in the place where they expect to die. This is Bethesda. And we can try and picture it. We can imagine it might be quite quiet, quite still. But there's a lot of pain, a lot of anguish. Perhaps the locals don't really go there very much, even though it's right on their doorstep. You know, the 19th century, they dug it up. They wanted to check out John's account. They found the basins. The structure was there. This place was real. And suddenly, out of nowhere, Jesus turns up. He's there, and he goes straight up to the guy who might just be the hardest case, and he gets to work on the Sabbath. And the debate about this passage is often about the Sabbath, or the reaction of the Jewish leaders, but if we look at it again, I think there are some profound challenges in here for us beyond that. For this is also a passage that speaks about service on the margins of society about the frontline battle for the kingdom of God. And if we allow it to, it pushes us to think of our place in that battle, our part in his story. And I want to mention four points in particular that I've been wrestling with this year. They're not particularly new, profound, or complex, but I hope they might prompt us again this morning. Point one from this story. It is our duty to look for the Bethesdas of today. We're told this is a place where the broken, the disabled, the sick, the ill gather. Where are they gathering today? Where are the overlooked, the neglected, the marginalized, the unfashionable today? He looked for them and he found them. And we need to as well. In the last year, God showed me two up close and uh, pretty starkly. Two Bethesdas, I suppose you can call them. One, the red light areas of India. And two, 
uh, the front room of a 93-year-old man just down the road from where we live. Come with me, if you can, to Calcutta in India for a few moments. I was there in February with Justice and Care, and actually you have to have um, protection, armed protection at times as a white western. This place is hell on earth. It's the largest network of brothels anywhere in Asia. They estimate that there are up to 12,000 women and girls getting abused and exploited there every day. The other day, one was found dead. And as you approach the edge of the red light area, before you even get there, there are families living on pavements. And I'll never forget this one family that I almost had to tread around. It was a young father on a mat. He was sobbing. He had three children. His arms were around these children. He was trying to protect them from the people walking by. The girl who reminded me of my little girl was crying. The other two little children were just shocked. And I've never quite seen desperation in the eyes of children like this, next to a three-lane highway. There was desperation on the streets before you even got to this area. And then you get into the red light area. And you see uh, girls as young as 12 who have been taken from home by traffickers. They're made to uh, dress up as grown women, and they're abused by grown men, uh, maybe 20, 25 minutes a day. And um, they're beaten, tortured, they're dying. And some of them don't even live to 25. And as you walk down the road, the brothel owners are pulling you in by their arm. And the girls are standing outside, and there are some streets we were told we couldn't go down because it was too dangerous. You'd have been lynched if you went down there. And then, perhaps worst of all, you see little toddlers walking around in nappies. And these are the children who were born in the red light area, and they are just kept until they're old enough to be exploited. This is a place of the broken. This is a place in desperate need of healing. It's not okay that that's happening right now this morning. It's not okay that that is how we treat young girls in that part of the world. And then there's Peter's front room down the road from me in Woking. He's 93. He fought on D-Day. He liberated Europe. He saved this country. Now he lives chronically lonely in his house in an armchair from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. every day. He can't walk very well. He never leaves the house. He sees nobody from day to day. When he makes a cup of tea, it takes him about 20 minutes to get to the kitchen, and he has to carry it back in a soup bowl because if he wants any tea left when he gets back to his armchair, he better have caught it in this bowl. And he gets teary when you talk to him about life. He's so lonely. He gets emotional. His wife died, his dog died. He doesn't feel particularly alive. And we said we wanted to pop round last Christmas Day as a family. He, first of all, he couldn't believe it. He just couldn't believe that anyone would bother to walk through the front door on a day like Christmas Day when, you know, you should be with your families. But he said, can I just ask you to do one thing? Can your children bring a few presents to open in front of me? Because I so miss seeing the look in children's faces. I miss seeing the wrapping paper on the floor. I miss seeing them light up. So we did. And he, he loved it. You'll see other places, but that is a Bethesda too. You don't have to pick up a newspaper more than five minutes to realize there are too many to count 
in modern society. But I believe through this passage, God might want to put a new Bethesda on your heart afresh this morning. It is our duty to look for them because Jesus looked for them. The second challenge that jumps out at me from Bethesda is a personal question. Who are we helping into the water? Would Jesus find any of us there if he turned up today? Look at the line, verse 6. Jesus says, do you want to get well? And the man says, I've got no one to help me down when the water is stirred. Forget whether for a second the water had healing powers. He had nobody to help him in when he was trying to reach that water. That should be a profound push for us today in the middle of our busy lives. Are we connecting in the Bethesdas? Are we engaged? Are we supporting? Would he find any of us there if he turned up today? Because across the world, we know there's a battle raging, fought out, often in the shadows. Human beings on either side of the fight. I see it in human trafficking, organized crime and exploitation, but we see it in the terror cells. We see it in the civil wars. We see it in the people profiting from poverty. We see it in the oppressors, the faith persecutors. The enemy is effective even if ultimately he's lost the battle. So on the other side, we better be getting involved in something even better, more sophisticated, more committed, more effective. We do see it. There are people fighting human trafficking. There are people ending poverty. There are peacemakers rising up in the war zones. There are people providing places of refuge and sanctuary for the dispossessed and displaced. But we need reinforcements the whole time to reach the hurting and the lost and to deal with this problem at scale. And that's one of the big lessons from Bethesda. The man had nobody. And I believe in that. Maybe God is trying to help a few of us get over the fear of getting messy. It's um, easy to be concerned about getting messy. And when you engage as Christians in messy places, you get messy. But it's okay to get messy. He's there. Others are there too. And maybe if you've struggled with that, there's nothing wrong with it, but God might just want to help you fear taking that step and fear what might want to come. So it's one thing to be aware of the Bethesda's. It's a second thing to get involved and serve and I think God's asking us that question this morning. The third area of challenge in this passage is our thinking big enough? Is our thinking big enough in the Bethesdas? Don't uh, misunderstand me. Often it is the small things that make all the difference to people on the margins of society. You know, the other day, um, Peter, who I mentioned, uh, had got so worked up all day because he'd run out of money in his house. He couldn't pay the person who was delivering his shopping the next day. He was frantic. He was actually terrified. And I, I just um, felt an urge to ring him. And he'd just said, I just called out to God to do something. Please do something because I don't know what to do. And he's a proud man. He doesn't want to not pay for his food the next day. And I just felt a sense to ring him. And I called him and he... Uh, have had the courage to ask me to bring some cash around. He just gave me a check. We replaced the money. Something so simple, but it transformed his life that day. So I know the small things can make a difference. But we also see in this passage that we need to be careful not to think small or limit our ambition on the margins. God is the ultimate big thinker. Like he uses us. 
That's pretty big. And take a look around. We see all the time the size of his brain and what he can achieve. And we're made in his image, so we better start thinking big too. And when you think about it and look at Bethesda, it's pretty clear. The disabled man was thinking big. He was there for something. He was hoping for healing. Jesus was thinking big. He still is. People today in the Bethesdas are still searching for something. They're still hoping for something big. Are we? Is our thinking big enough? So easy to slip into the worldly thinking. To, to go for the set of standard expectations. But we need the Holy Spirit if we're going to break out of that. The Holy Spirit in places like Bethesda is not some bolt-on. Not some sort of Tesco's finest, a nice to have. It is essential to getting the job done. The Holy Spirit is what equips us to think big and stay focused. And if we don't have him, we miss it sometimes even before we got started. And one of the other ways we can lose track if we're not careful, and this is difficult, but we can let other people, other cynicism, constrain our thinking. And it can stop us getting the job done. I remember when I led the, uh, this think tank, the Center for Social Justice, I went to see a number of um, senior politicians because I wanted us to take up modern slavery as a cause. I wanted to put modern slavery front and center in British politics and to move the government to action. And so many of these MPs just said, you are wasting your time. This is not an election winner. It's not a doorstep issue. Britain doesn't really have a problem. Do something else. But we'd seen it out on the front line. Trafficking was a problem. And uh, I actually found that more of an attractive challenge. When they said no, I thought we would actually go even harder. And I have to say, uh, we made a recommendation for a Modern Slavery Act. And when the Queen signed that Modern Slavery Act in 2015, I thank God we didn't listen. I didn't let the politicians, the cynicism, get in the way. And um, I also felt a bit smug, but that's not very holy. <laughs> And uh, you can ignore that one. Um, when at Justice and Care, we move into the grip of the mafia, a city totally owned by criminal networks, exploiting children. People say you're wasting your time. This place will never be turned. It's futile. You know, child abuse is a way of life. It's an economic foundation for this city. They pay off the police, the judges forget it. But we don't forget it. We go. And we succeed, and do you know why? Because our thinking isn't small. And as Christians, we've got to tell ourselves that, that the word unprecedented doesn't mean something that could never happen. It means something that hasn't happened yet. And I saw this account on Facebook the other day. A friend sent it to me. This is a woman who works at Tear Fund. Another friend sent it to me. And I wanted to read it because it blew me away. This lady wrote... It's not often that you meet someone who was once deaf and who can now hear. This weekend I met a lady in her 50s who had lost her hearing as a two-year-old toddler. She had no memory of sound and for 52 years she could only communicate through sign language and lip reading. A couple of months ago, her husband was discussing with their grandson about how Jesus still heals people today when we pray, upon which the grandson, aged six, turned around and says, well, why hasn't Jesus healed Nana's hearing then? Before either she or her husband could respond, this six-year-old had taken it upon himself to pray for her. She could feel his touch, but she kept her eyes closed so she couldn't lip-read the words he used to pray. 
When he lifted his little hands off her ears, she realized she could hear. Looking at her husband, she wasn't sure whether she was imagining it or whether it was real. So she told her husband to face away the other way and ask her something. With his back turned, he asked her whether she'd like a drink. She could clearly hear the question and she said champagne because she had something to celebrate. She was once deaf and now she can hear. So when people say your workplace can't be turned or the poverty runs too deep or the illness can't be cured or the war is too uh, entrenched, the relationship's too broken, the addiction is too powerful, the family can't be saved, think of Bethesda. Think of this Paul of the broken. Think of what Jesus does with this man who has been disabled for 38 years. And we need to ask God to give us the vision and the strength to think big enough and to get in there and go with his grace. And it's worth noting, Jesus doesn't just sympathize. He doesn't bring the guy lunch. He doesn't offer to take him to the nearest hostel. Important as those things are, I don't belittle those things. But he went straight in and he rewrote the rules. He sparked total change for this man. And look how the religious leaders responded. This guy had been a disabled man for 38 years. He got up and walked. And the religious leaders walk over and say, you're not allowed to carry your mat. It's the Sabbath. That's extraordinary to miss a, miss a kingdom moment like that. But how often do we do that? How often do we miss it? How often do others we know miss it? Their thinking wasn't big enough. Sometimes ours isn't. So yes, it can be the simple things. It can be the cup of tea in Peter's living room. It can be a new set of clothes for the girls in this brothel. But actually, we can't stop asking for the impossible too. Jesus is in the business of the impossible, and he thinks big. And when we get to the Bethesda's, we better have the Holy Spirit, and we better be thinking big too. Fourth and final challenge for me that leaps out from this passage. Are we letting Jesus win the argument? Yet again in this story, we see that he doesn't start with convincing, he starts with compassion. That was the first move. And sometimes I feel we get a bit lost in trying to win the intellectual argument when some people just need to meet Jesus in the mess. We almost try everything else first. We have the luxury of not asking Jesus in. And look at what happens at the end of the passage. The man walks off healed, but he has absolutely no idea who healed him. And it's interesting to me that Jesus didn't just hit him with some theology at the same time. He didn't hand over some spiritual business card with his digits. Later, after this thing had sunk in, Jesus goes to the temple and says, Look, you are now well. Sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. First, and we know this, it tells us that the physical healing is part one. We know there's a deeper restoration at stake here. We mustn't stop short at just meeting basic needs. But just as with the woman at the well, the father whose son was dying and Jesus got rid of the fever, Jesus wins the argument by showing up and doing something totally transformational. He reveals his power, and that is what sparks the faith. I was so struck when Jackie Pullinger was here, and she said, I deal with the addiction first, because when they've met the living Jesus, they have absolutely no problem accepting that he died for them too and buying the theology. 
when they're free from a lifelong drug addiction, they'll buy it because something remarkable has happened in their lives. They'll accept he's alive and they'll accept he died for them too. So don't mishear me. The people who are making the factual, academic, intellectual case for Christ are amazing. They're winning the argument. They're bringing thousands of people to faith. And we've got to thank God for them. I'm inspired by them. Their brains are so much bigger than mine. But all I'm saying here is that we can't be afraid to ask Jesus in to start with at the same time and let him win the argument for us. At places like Bethesda, he can do things no one else can. Wouldn't it be remarkable if this church and this city was known as a place for the extraordinary moments actually becoming a bit ordinary? I know in the prayer room, people have been sensing this over the last week, rising up, seeing that faith, almost childlike faith, like that six-year-old boy who had the courage to put his hands on the head and pray. Jesus won the argument, and on the margins of society, he can do it so much more effectively than we can. So, I suppose four kind of pretty simple challenges from the healing at this, this amazing place, Bethesda. Challenge one, where are the equivalent places today? Where are the broken gathered? Two, it is our duty to go. And who are we helping when we're there into the water? Three, is our thinking big enough when we're there? And four, are we letting Jesus win the argument? So as I was you know, praying, this, praying about this morning, I just sense that there might be two groups of people that that is useful for. You know, I look around this hall, by the way, and I just see so many people already at Bethesda. They're already doing it. They're giving everything, and they're taking ground. But maybe there are one or two others. And I just thought that maybe there's a first small group of people who, for some time maybe, have just felt a calling. They felt an ache to get part of this justice movement. They feel a quickening of the heart. Maybe that God is wanting to put a place on your heart afresh this morning. It might mean engaging down your road. It might mean crossing an ocean. It might mean a career change. It might mean changing your prayer life to stand with people in Bethesda's. It might mean your giving needs to change. But maybe today God wants a new pose, a new posture, a yes and an amen. And the second group, I wondered if this was useful for, was the group already there, the already giving their all at the Bethesda's of today, but they're tired, maybe even disillusioned. It's inevitable at times because look at the, the hard slog it can be. Look at the great heroes of our faith, like William Wilberforce, who fought in Parliament for 40 years before the, of, the, sli- the tide of slavery was turned. Think of the opposition, the illness, the disappointment, the temptation to relent. But he persevered. And under God's wing, you can persevere. So if you're feeling flat or burned out or tired in these places, don't let disillusioned turn to disengaged. This fight is so important. We cannot afford to lose you. Galatians 6.9 says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. If that's you, ask for God's help. He'll re-energize you. He's promised to do it. But either way, my prayer for us at Emmaus is that we gather every week in our groups and at 
in a, on a Sunday morning. We serve, we learn, we encourage, we re-energize, and then we go. We go to these places under God's grace, on our knees, giving everything on the great mission fields of our day, increasingly courageous and optimistic. And if we do that on our knees, in God's grace, we might just take some ground for the kingdom of God that we so want to build in our villages, towns, and cities. So like he did, let's get to work. Thank you.